0: Hello and welcome to Art Witch, the podcast where creativity, magic, and healing align for personal and collective liberation. I'm your host, Zanetta, and welcome. Art Witch aims to provide resources for creative empowerment, helping folks make and share their art, and also find their authentic expression. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of artists, witches, and healers, as well as experts in various art industries and related fields, all with the intention of helping folks share their art and their unique magic. everyone and welcome. Before we dive into today's episode, which I'm so excited about, I want to give a special thank you to our latest Patreon community members, Cole, Krista, and Vive. Thank you all so much for joining and supporting this work. Putting on a weekly podcast is deep and I love it. It is such a passion. Feels like a soul calling for me. And it's really, really a joy to be able to share this work with you and to amplify artists whose work is deeply, deeply transformative and healing to even just listen about, (laughs) to listen to. So thank you all for supporting this. If you want to join the Patreon community, we actually have a lot going on in that area. Right now we are doing a 29-day silent meditation series where I've recorded a whole bunch of guided meditations to help folks start a silent meditation practice. It's called Inner Compass. And we basically work with the moon to gradually develop this practice and to do it in a very soft and kind way. So this Patreon community has all sorts of spiritual, magical tools that I'll be adding to throughout the year. We also do weekly meditations in this series. So there's still time to actually sign up And to join this silent meditation series if you want to start a silent meditation practice um, I'm kind of closing the door on this around January 19th so basically right around the first quarter moon is when I'll kind of close the enrollment for that so if you are interested go ahead and visit the link below and without further ado here is today's episode. So I'm so excited today about this guest and the work and the topics we're going to be exploring. It's not every day that I get a chance to speak with a fellow sound artist and to really explore the world of sound as in community and to be with someone who has really traversed such a deep and wide spectrum of sound expression. And so I have the great pleasure and honor of speaking today with Ricardo. I am Yuri Robinson. Welcome Ricardo.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to to be here. Definitely wonderful to be here.
0: Oh, it's so wonderful for you to join. I know that you do a lot of composing, you do a lot of sound recording, and you're also an audio-visual artist. So you've really traversed like a really wide terrain of what sound can be and can take shape and form as. Could you speak a little bit about how you got into sound and, and how you kind of find yourself at your work today.
1: I would say when I think about how I got into sound, the thing that comes to mind is that sound has always been in me or I was born into sound. Something that doesn't create this sort of separation, a language that doesn't create a beginning nor an end. It's kind of like this sort of awakening to the relationship with sound or a discovery or rediscovery of this sort of energy that's, uh, that I'm having, uh, an intimate relationship with. And I can speak about, uh, coming from a background where my family had a choir. I had a family choir, so there was music from the inception. When you're looking around and you're seeing mother, aunts, uncles, grandfather, grandmother, all creating this tight unit of sound and music. Yeah, you're kind of just like invited into the world, into this this blessed space mm-hmm. where a whole entire family is making up this unit to share these frequencies and these harmonies because it was an a cappella choir i would say that played a significant role with my relationship with sound um mm-hmm. My relationship with music, my relationship with harmony, my relationship with discordance. And then as time went on and I went through the boy bands and I did the R&B music and I wanted, you know, to dance and be flashy and attractive and appealing and, and sing in a certain way that magnified that sort of glam, something changed. In my teens, I began to read (laughs) and not reading assignments that were, you know, uh, assigned to me in school, but my own autodidacticism, just like my own pursuit of self-knowledge. And the voices on the pages uh, started to really create a new type of literacy where it was just like, oh, wow. I'm no longer just allowing the words or the songs to wash over me. I'm actually thinking critically about the engagement and I'm thinking critically about how I'm going to use my vocal to express this specific song. And I became interested in who were the writers, uh, be if it's songwriters, writers, Who were the people that uh, laid down the theories for capitalism, socialism, communism, anarchism, all these isms, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, you know, Hinduism. We can, you know, go on and on. I just, I became very hungry to have this relationship with all these branches on the tree, and I guess listen, engage with the sound in all of these spaces, and everything that I touched shaped me, and I love who I am, you know, I love the way I think, I love the way I see through this face and out of these eyes, I love how I look at life, I love how I look at people, and I love the various threads of truth that I've found scattered along the way so far. And a lot of it has been in the music and has been in the sound, has been in the frequency. And and where I'm at right now, you know, on my my 44th revolution around the sun, I'm in a very interesting place of unlearning and, yeah, kind of like shedding a sort of breakdown, an induced breakdown in order to break through. And it can be dangerous. Because sometimes, you know, I will experience the anxiety and the discomfort. And then I'm just reminding myself that you're hatching. You know, there's going to be some discomfort. Uh But once you give birth to this new awareness, this, this new language, you're going to be all right. I guess what's at the heart of my answer is the sound has always been there. It's really about Awakening to its reality or being open to its existence or even applying the meaning yourself.
0: Mm. Yeah, I really, really feel you on that. First, I want to just give deep love to your family for ushering you into this world in sound that's just incredibly beautiful. And I have such a deep respect for intergenerational art energies (laughs) that the inheritance that we receive as from one generation to another being able to create and express and evolve and i've had kind of the pleasure of my dad was a drummer and being really brought into the world with deep love for sound and i think about how that relationship with sound has just shifted over time Maybe when I was younger, I found that I would hear the wind in the trees and that meant something to me and was just a little, almost like a fairy, you know, like a magical sprite or something (laughs) that just kind of came through and, and caught my attention. And then in my, you know, maybe teen years or in my college years, really getting kind of, you know, more aggressive with the sound. <laughs> you know, I kind of got on my, my deep masculine side and really like, bring it all, bring it hard, bring it, play that bass drum. <laughs> and then as I've gotten older, like what that's morphed to, and I'd love to hear actually a little bit about how you've noticed your sound, your relationship to sound shifting over those years, over over the course of a lifetime.
1: The major change I want to speak on is my consciousness within the music, within the sounds. Like I was saying, sure, I was brought into this sort of sacred space, these choir sort of chantings and the Negro spirituals and things of that nature, but I've always questioned the inquisitive side of me and the, the... The critical thinker you know has always challenged anything that tried to become an authority any doctrine that tried to say this is the ultimate truth and this is the way that something should this is the way you need to play music this is the scale you need to abide by certain things started to become more appealing to my rebel ear it was like You're not going to tell me what beauty sounds like. You're not going to show me what freedom is or what love should sound like. And I started to recognize how manipulative sound is and how it's used in film and how it's used in, you know, just pop culture and and things of that nature. So it was the consciousness that started to to raise and then I started to like ask myself how do I want to use it? And uh, how will I allow myself to be used by it? And I gravitated towards folk music. And I gravitated towards folk music because there's such integrity with the lyrics uh, it seems like if you want to learn about politics or history or the various revolutions that have popped up throughout the world, the victories and the defeats and just the critical songwriter folk was the place to be it had more of a sociological, perspective. Everything else kind of seemed personal or pathetic and not in a negative sense, but just like trying to inspire emotions of blaming someone for infidelity or, you know, the loss of a lover or, you know, mm-hmm. and and all of that is well and good. But at a certain time in my life, I needed to hear the folk music. I needed to hear Bob Dylan and Richie Havens and and Ben Harper and Tracy Chapman and Joni Mitchell and uh, Joan Baez and, and Tim Buckley. I was like, OK, there's a home for me musically, mm-hmm. sharing music and being conscious of what I want to sing about and, and what I want to share. My first album that I ever released is called Conversations with Shepherds, Sheep, Guinea Pigs, and Monkeys, Nursery Rhymes for the Underfed Mind, Volume 1. And uh, I love long titles, by the way. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs>
1: so I, I wanted to create a folk album that kind of created these archetypes of uh, characters that are governed and ruled or wanting to rule and govern or lead. So it was the conversation with the shepherds, the sheep, the guinea pigs, the monkeys. And I wanted it to have that levity, that playfulness. So they sound like nursery rhymes for me. I think it's very important to hold on to the childish wonderment as we experience this journey and eventually become elders ourselves and If you can have that wisdom of the elder and that wonder of the child, kind of like find yourself somewhere in the middle to balance those two, you're gonna have an incredible experience here in this world.
0: Folk music really was this vehicle to explore these kinds of concepts of authority and rebelness and just stay in that sacred integrity, with what you're exploring and what you're trying to communicate.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like, you know, speaking about raising that consciousness, some people when that consciousness starts to raise, they go toward jazz or they go toward classical, you know, because now you start to become engaged with the conversation, the sonic conversation that's that's going on. And you're no longer just, you know, dancing to to the beat, which is All fine and dandy. But in my experience, those are the sounds that I sought out when that consciousness started to expand and contract and be massaged and be cultivated. It was just like, oh, folk for the lyrics, jazz for the freedom classical for its attempt to be precise and perfect.
0: I just love the way that you gathered those different genres, those different styles as almost like these unique realms that each hold something quite precious and beautiful and relative to your own experience you have come to find, like, the grace in each one. We have a lot of folks who listen to this podcast who are, like, recovering art school folks. They went through, like, some kind of formalized education around creating and art making. And in that, there's a lot of folks nursing some pretty deep wounds, you know, from these genres that they had initially fell in love with for one reason or another like say classical music and yet I love how you were like classical music and the attempt at getting to that precision and really you know honing in that little nugget right there is just so healing to hear <laughs> <laughs> it is I went to music school and 10 years after maybe graduating from music school I only now I'm in a place where i Think ah, I might want to come back and listen to some of those pieces that I played. I wonder if you have any thoughts about exploring these different styles and genres, taking what is helpful and leaving the rest.
1: I guess with all of these genres, it is very interesting to find the beauty in all of them, such as like soul classics, R&B. There's something about how visceral it is, how reactionary it is. It, it isn't about trying to rationalize or think things through or even take on the responsibility of your own contribution to your own pain that you're singing about. It's kind of like you did this to me, but that's valid for you to want to express that. That's so real. That's the immediate experience that a victim has. And I honor that. I honor that immediate, raw, soulful, uh, emotional wilderness that is expressed in soul and R and B. There's Otis Redding, you know, uh sitting on the, the dock of the bay, Etta James, at last, where she swings on in, you know. At last or or Ray Charles. It's so immediate it's so close closer to it's indigenous it's so close to the 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 rawness of one's emotional geography so i honor that in the hip-hop as well you know a lot of people are having debates about hip-hop and this isn't hip-hop anymore hip-hop was so many things and and still is so many things. You had the sort of, let's just dance, kid and play sort of sound. The sort of joking around and I just want to sound funny rhyming. And, and then you had the reports coming from the villages that... People label as ghettos. This was on the ground reporting. So great storytellers in all of these genres and even in the instrumentals, you know, in the classical music, a story is being told. Uh, You just have to learn the language. And yes, I'm very interested in music theory and learning more about these various genres in a scholarly way, but I know that it's gonna be very hard to tame my ear, to ask me to listen to it in a certain way. I don't mind the suggestion, but when I start to hear language of this is how it should be listened to, Mm. you know, you can tell somebody how something should be played if you see how it has been written, but how it should be heard. I think the listener is always the composer. The listener is always the composer. No matter what I compose as a musician, as an artist, as a soundscape designer, it comes down to whoever is listening to it and everything that they're bringing into that moment to translate those sounds accordingly and I, and and that's a very humbling thing. It it really takes a lot of the power away from the composer but it it liberates the composer to really create without trying to create without expectation. Just create for the sake of creation.
0: Oh, that's so so interesting. I really feel you on this concept of listener as composer we do live in such a heavy visual society in many ways such emphasis is placed on visual information and stimulus that it's very easy to forget that when listening there's such a deeply proactive component so so proactive I think back in August I taught like a workshop on sound talismans and creating um, magical basically field recordings and doing rituals and using field recordings and rituals as transportative portals of a sense to bring you to different times and places and to experience certain energies that you want to work with at future dates and one of the concepts that really came through that community and that workshop was this idea that we are co-creators always with the sound even when we're listening and we're silent right and we're just sitting there and we're listening our perception is being woven in real time alongside what we're hearing and we're formulating what it is that we think we're experiencing and it's this whole world is being built
1: absolutely
0: and I feel like that really is something that just goes so unknown. Like for a lot of folks, they're like, well, I heard, a, I heard a bird. I heard a car. I heard a plane. And one of the exercises I like to go through with people is, okay, cool. So that's one one layer of things that you're experiencing. And then I invite them to not label anything when they listen and to just listen to the sound and not label the source and to just purely interface with like what it is that they're hearing, you know, like maybe it's, if it's this call, then listen to its repetition or listen to its, you know, its frequency, its highs, its lows, its, you know, speed or duration, whatever, you know, parameter that you would like to engage with.
1: It's very difficult to extract the references from the reality to extract the language and the symbols and to the point where we smell lemon pledge you know a tabletop cleaner and then we smell a lemon and we say damn this lemon smells like lemon pledge
0: yeah. You know what
1: I'm saying? Yes. It, it it's like <laughs>
0: That's a great example. <laughs> it,
1: it's like the the references now rule the reality. We are buried beneath the rubble of metaphor and when you start to peel back the metaphor and see what it just is and listen to the isness of it without The labels and without the the categorization, there is this sort of reflex to like maintain a sense of control. And words and labels is an expression of that attempt to tame this incredible experience we call life. Yes. Some people need that order in order to listen, in order to uh, see in order to, you know, experience life through their senses. They need it cataloged and measured and dissected and and weighed.
0: It's interesting. I think I found my way to that kind of listening through various practices of meditation that I've explored, like Vipassana, and then checking out other sound Pioneers like Armory Schaefer and Bernie Krause, who does a lot of field recording, those kinds of folks. But while I don't always listen to things that way for myself, I don't always listen to things um, in a non judgmental, peel back the layers of my filter kind of way. It is really empowering because it gives some space. It gives some space between that reactionary experience of sound and just being like it's a car and then bringing all that metaphor onto the table immediately and being like well is it a car or is it now the beginning of the opening sequence of this experience like now it gets to be reframed I have some sense of being able to take a sound that I maybe once only associated with maybe a handful of things that's a siren that's it that's all it can be you know a siren can only mean emergency and urgency and x y and z now it means something else now it can be something else and i think this is really really profound about sound it's one of my favorite things about working with sound it's relative you get to create so much context it's like the sound in relationship, the sound, out of relationship, it's infinite in possibility and expansiveness. And I'd love to hear a little bit, actually, about some of the ways that you've been exploring listening and some of the ways that you've been exploring, like this working creatively with the medium of sound as a re- in relationship or out of relationship.
1: It seems as if every one of these kind of field of art creation or creative fields has its pantheons its gods and goddesses or its originators so you know of course you step into you're like you know i'm i'm really interested in in listening now and in field recording and just you start questioning Or reconsidering what you once thought noise was. And now that definition starts to change and everything is noise, you know, and and you start to realize that noise is now being defined as unwanted sound. So it doesn't make it less musical. It just makes it specific, you know, for a specific listener. But there's just something about coming into these spaces. You're meeting all of these various artists and then you find comments from like an R. Murray Schaefer where he makes that comment about the Eskimos, the book that I recommended when we first spoke, Hungry Listening. The quote was, the Eskimos are such an astonishingly unmusical race that the composer really has to wring his material To make it musically presentable, there is a marked similarity between an Eskimo singing and Sir Winston Churchill clearing his throat. Maybe that's my interpretation. I'm hearing certain tone to fit my story that this just was not a negative critique of the Eskimos, as he calls them, their way of expressing themselves musically or sonically. So I can't worship these originators the way that the field of that specific art field worships them because there is a kind of bias and a sort of discrimination and a dehumanization and a racism that exists in a, a eugenics uh, yeah. l- language of inferiority and superiority. So there's this sort of decolonizing my listening that had to take place. And I'm still in that place of decolonizing my listening and, and giving a really proud description of my engagement with sounds that have been critiqued by others as being inferior, just with a negative connotation. So I, I'm very careful with who is speaking? Who's the editor? Who's the translator? And what is their contribution to this field that I'm interested in learning more about, which is field recording and soundscapes and sound design. Do I even want to call it soundscapes since I know this man coined the term? So it gives me a lot of freedom to recreate my ear, recreate my experience with sound, with noise, with harmony, with discordance. And I don't want to tear down all of the the work that has gone into trying to build this encyclopedia or this sort of arc of knowledge about sound, but... I am interested in the ancestry of sound and I call it sown archaeology just to, you know, align myself with the ologies out there, you know, and I define it as the mystical study of the ancestry of sound very important for me to distinguish the mysticism from the science because i guess i'm honoring my personal interpretation my improvisational listening my relationship that i do not want to generalize or impose upon people that listen differently that compose this sonic uh, relationships according to specific regions of this world that there's so much color. There's so much color, and variations of selves, humanity. You know, to compare these Eskimos to uh, to your reference, you know, Winston Churchill, and you have a very parochial you know lens that you're you're looking through i can't go through life like that even by saying i want to be open i'm creating my own dogma and it's the dogma of wanting to be open so you can't escape creating your own routine and your own rituals but i appreciate Schaefer and cage and all of these artists that have Explored deeply within themselves and wanted to share that piece of themselves with the world. I'm not going to define his whole entire life from one little quote. That's that's just that's just stupid.
0: One of the things I really love to think about is that every sound that we've ever heard or that will ever be heard is kind of a form of energy, and that that energy has been transferred from sound source to sound source since the beginning of the universe. This is something I like to really spend time with and just kind of, you know, roll around in, (laughs) so to speak. You know, since that spontaneous creative fire that brought our universe into existence and all the sounds that came with it. And then how that sound energy has impacted life. And the creation of life over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: <I've>, <laughs> you're like, uh-huh. I'm no. right there with you, Zanette. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm getting, I'm
1: getting so high off of this, this, <laughs> this moment right now. <laughs> I'm like, wow.
0: When I think about that, there's first of all a comfort that I get, actually because any moment that I'm listening, I feel very interconnected with the world. Just recognizing that there's sound energy being shared with me, even if it's unwanted. There's sound energy, it is the sound of life, it is the sound of movement, and it is the sound of people trying their best to do their best and to thrive on some level. And I don't always love those sounds. You know, I live in Brooklyn. There's a lot of car horns. There's a lot of people yelling at each other out their windows and things like that. (laughs) There's a lot of like (laughs) subwoofers. There's a lot. From time to time, I'm like, that's really not aligned with where I am. And, (laughs) but I do like to think about that that sound is being carried. So like, say I hear someone yelling out on the street and i receive that information and my perception co-creates by composing its own narratives and experience and consensus reality around that and then that influences me to then go and do whatever i might do throughout my day based off of those narratives and the that reality that i've co-created I feel like sonarchaeology actually really spoke to me because I was checking out your The Pittsburgh Sound Like Tour and the Explorations of the Ancestry of Sound and and that and I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about this transference of sound across time and space in specific places. Would you share some about that? Because it's really it's rolling around in my mind, and I feel like I just this is like I have to go there with you.
1: There's no way I can talk about this. This is this is beyond my scope. Um, <laughs> but I, I I will attempt. I will make the attempt. First and foremost, what is time? This is the process that I. I have to put myself through before I begin to think about a concept or before I begin to think about what I'm trying to think about right now, which is this transference of sound throughout these ages and errors and these um, time periods. So let's undress it. it. It is not January. February, March, we know that that was invented. So if we get rid of the calendar altogether, uh, we still have these seasons and we still have this sunlight and this shadow that we call night. And we're experiencing this dance between the light and the shadow and things are moving and things are withering and things are changing. but. That's become the constant, the change, and there's a repetition and sounds are being born and and sounds are diminishing, you know, as they travel throughout space and across land and expand. But there's no imports. What I mean by this is the ocean that we stare at today and the ocean that we listen to today. The water does evaporate and rise up into the sky and create clouds and comes back down to the earth. You know, and I'm speaking about this transference. It's still the ocean of yesteryears. And it's the sound of is still very much there but now there's more objects making their own sounds that are also being captured by the ocean that has been assimilated so there's this sort of i would say if you were to enter an anechoic chamber and to remove all of these different sounds, the car horns and, you know, the generators and and the ocean and the birds and the trees, you would hear what life sounds like. (laughs) That would be your own heartbeat and the flow of the ocean in your veins. That transference is very much present today from the past to the point where it's very easy to time travel if you realize that the ground that you're standing on right now was the ground of yesterday you know object or sculpture or structure there that uh be if it's a house or a building but it's still the same space and it has a history and it has frequencies and it had the sound of construction and it had the sound of earth cracking and it had the sound of water flowing and it's all in these spaces the transference that you speak of I would compare it to the ocean and how it's always been here and it's and it's always going to be here it's the same water You know, the element has not changed. Just like the sound, sound itself, the essence of vibration has not changed. It's vibrating. It's always been vibrating. Just to be aware of all the vibrations that have led up to your own materialization, your own forming, is an incredibly mind-blowing thing. (laughs)
0: I'd love to hear a little bit about your explorations with with sun artifacts and sun archaeology.
1: I would say the artifacts have been the artwork I've created from these these field recordings or through the process of listening and conceptualizing and even hearing myself listen and listening to myself hearing— It's been interesting to see what has been shaped out of these frequencies, um, which I would label as sewn artifacts. And I, I would say Lavender Freddy is a sewn artifact. There was a piece that I did called Steel Phonics. And this was... Basically to bring attention to visibility issues when it comes to the narrative of history and specifically in this piece, the African-American contribution to the steel history here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was very interesting that the majority of pictures and photographs, you know, are not... People of color of people of african uh descent, and you know it's his story, and I wanted to know you know another story, so what I did was I invented a nineteen sixty eight experimental funk band of sorts if if not funk experimental found sound band called the steel phonics and it was a group of gentlemen that um worked in the steel mill and used a specific type of recorder to collect sounds and they incorporated these sounds into their music and they released three albums throughout the 70s and and they still were able to work at the steel mill during these times And what's interesting about Steel Phonics is that they're not, if you Google them, they're not a real band. You're not going to find them. They exist in my imagination. So it comes to the point of creating your own mythology in order to become visible. I know that African Americans are more visible when it comes to their contribution in sports and entertainment, singers, you know, you don't hear about the doctors and the lawyers and the steel workers and the engineers. You don't hear about those stories. You have to kind of search for them. But when it comes to the commercialization of McDonald's and the commercialization of Nike and the commercialization of everything. the african-american is the first person to go to to make your product cool or to make your product hip so i said okay let me create something where the african-american is more visible in the steel industry so i turned them into a band and uh and their music is basically about the invisibility or about the modern monster and about challenging progress and where is this sort of greed and wealth going and how people are treated in the mills, even though these are very good jobs. But they used a lot of sound to create these pieces. There wasn't a lot of yeah. lyrical content.
0: The sound profile, what, how did you explore that? what was your kind of forays and in, into that? Cause creating a sound profile for a time and place that you may not share the same literal physical space with is just beyond fascinating to me.
1: What's interesting is when I look around at the information that has reached my mind on the assembly line of public education Throughout the libraries, there is that same sort of mythologizing that has been now accepted as fact. And it's just, okay, if they had the audacity to do this and fight for its validity, I guess what it comes down to is can I create these personas and these people And give them so much meaning that I don't want to create fake news per se. I want to create a mythology that inspires, just as others have done as well. In this specific art piece, I was trying to inspire visibility and challenge the invisibility of the that exist in the mythology that's created by the historians. So yes, it was a reactionary piece that uh, was in dialogue with the omitters of history. And if they can, you know, insert their mythologies, I felt free to insert my mythology as well.
0: I think this brings up something that that a lot of emerging folks who are interested in ritual, interested in magic, interested in witchcraft, all that jazz. You know, there's like this, is it real? <laughs> is it real? Is it real if it's, if it's me alone in my room and I'm praying over these herbs and I'm singing to my grandmother and I'm, you know, seeing us walk in our... Our homeland, which is not where I live, is it real when we create in this way, and when we, when it's not accepted as fact in consensus, you know, over culture reality, and um, yeah, fuck yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It really is because it comes back, I think, a lot to what we were talking about earlier about perception and listening and co-creation. You're creating, you're listening, and you're walking in this new reality that you have composed as through your myth, as through your art, as through your ritual. And for me, at least, it's been one of the largest reasons why I found my way to things like witchcraft or tarot or diasporic kind of explorations of ritual and, and healing. I think I got into it because I needed something that was outside at least the mainstream avenues to find the access to what has been deeply and purposefully suppressed.
1: Oh, yes.
0: You have to create the tools that you need to liberate yourself.
1: You're touching on something that is so important. For any human being that is trying to honor their full humanity, their, their full voice, their full experience, and it is being very vigilant when realities are imposed upon you or when a lens a lens is given to you, like, here's 2020 vision. This is the standard. This is how you should see the world. You know, it should be this type of focus. And not to take anything away from the people that have studied the eye and sight and, and things of that nature, but I think it is very, very bold to create a prescription of perception, of visualization of how things should be seen. uh, Sure, if you're running into things and hurting yourself and others, then yes, maybe something needs to be uh, applied that could, uh, you know, assist you. But when it comes to just things are a little soft or out of focus or what is being in focus. So the same goes for reality. I know I have dreamt and I have returned from my dreams with tears. I have dreamt and I have returned from my dreams screaming with fear. I know I have dreamt. And I have returned from these dreams with a melody and a, and a language and songs and new songs. So this space that I travel to every time my body decides to shut down and restore itself and the imagery and the spaces that are created while I'm in this meditation in this space and the loved ones that have moved on, have transcended their corporeal experience. I am able to meet them again in these spaces. Do we ask, is that real? No, no. We, we have another language for that. We call it, I had a dream last night. But there's no difference from how that dream has impacted you or impacted me it still inspired me to cry it still informed me to be afraid it still gifted me with a melody to write a new song i still embraced a loved one that we buried in the ground so i say acknowledge all of this mystery as real even the illusions are real the dreams are real there is no copyright on what is real and the system that tries to create a curriculum of reality knows that every human being is capable of perceiving their own reality that's a threat you, yeah. you want to have some sort of order. You want to have some sort of program. You want to have some sort of prescription. You want to have some sort of similarity and homogenization. Uh, you want people to be easily, you know, swayed, especially if you're trying to govern free people. So it's all very, very real. Guard your realities because they're worth guarding and protecting.
0: Mm, thank you, thank you, thank you. Ricardo, I always ask folks, what advice would you give to your younger artist self?
1: I would say I can't wait until you meet who you, you become.
0: That says it all. <laughs> <laughs> it has been such a joy, such a gift be in conversation with you. Your work inspires me so deeply. Like, I can't wait to spend more time with your work in these coming months, years, and just to walk the path as your work unfolds. And I know a lot of other folks would probably get a lot, a lot from being able to connect with you and your work. Would you mind sharing what is the best way to engage with your work and to connect with you
1: sure sure uh first and foremost i would like love to say thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast um thank you so much for being who you are and and making space and making the time to honor the the things that i'm sharing artistically and sonically i truly appreciate you so much so much thank you so much as as far as for the people that are interested in exploring any of the work that I do you can find my conceptual art under the name uh, Ricardo Iamuri Robinson and on Instagram you can find me uh, at Lavender Freddy Mm.
0: thank you thank you (laughs) If you enjoyed today's episode of Art Witch, please consider subscribing or writing a review. Each and every little bit helps spread the word to more and more people.